Okay, well, let's turn together this morning, if you have a Bible, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Those of you who have been here for any length of time at all, you know that I quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, regularly as a, in my opinion, the most concise and clear, uh, specific articulation of the gospel, understanding the gospel that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians five twenty one there. And so this is a passage that I, I, I love uh, dearly. It's meant a great deal to me in my walk with Christ, and it's a passage we're going to consider together this morning. Before we read it, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. If you've been with us at all, and I know that many of us have been traveling and have been in and out sporadically through the month of December and through the holidays, but in the month of December, we have been studying uh, the Christ of Christmas as we anticipated Christmas and um, as you know, we, we looked forward to the day where we celebrate the birth of Christ uh, the advent, that is the coming of Christ in, in human flesh, God with us, our Emmanuel. As we look forward to that day, we've studied something of the purpose or the reason why Christ came. So the Christ of Christmas and the things that he came to do. Not exhaustively, but to some, to some lengthy extent. And we've seen from the beginning that he came according to the promises of God. And, and then really that theme repeated itself each week so that no matter what specific task we looked at uh, what specific thing Christ accomplished in his coming and sought to accomplish and to do in his coming it was done so according to God's promises and to fulfill those promises but so we began our study with considering from Genesis all the way back in the beginning one two and three there uh, where the the fall and and then God's cursing of sin but but that in the midst of all of the death and cursing that there is this promise that God will redeem and God will deliver and that God will send Christ at Christmas to to do for us what we could not do and so we noticed most sort of infantly if you will that Christ came according to the promises of God that they would be fulfilled but then we also seen that he came to be light and he came to shepherd and um, we we've considered these multiple other themes about Christ's work and what he's done for us. And so today I want us to turn uh, to consider as we bring the study to a close uh, that Christ came to make new. We read from Revelation 21 just a moment ago at uh, the, the, the great vision at the end of Scripture where uh, the consummation of the age is presented and, and John there is seeing uh, this 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 vision of, of what's going to happen and the victory that Christ will enjoy and, and how his uh, victory and his reign in the earth will be completed and will begin from that point with his people. And in that vision, uh, it is declared, I, I have come to make all things new. Talks about the new heaven and the new earth uh, and how that new heaven and that new earth. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether the new earth is, a, is an entirely new earth. Uh, I, I tend to take the other view that it's that it's this earth redeemed, and in part you'll see why in this study this morning. But it, it really doesn't matter. The, the point is that in the redemptive work of Christ, who came at Christmas, part part of his purpose was this redeeming and recreating work that he came to make things new. And what we're going to see from Second Corinthians chapter five is that he came to make us new. He came to make us new. 
And so we're going to read this together and then we're going to study it and think about it a bit as we bring this study to a close. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. We could have backed on up, but I wanted to just focus on the verses that we want to consider. We'll read verses 16 through 19 together. Before we read, let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us new eyes to see this morning, that you would give us new minds to with which to think and new hearts uh, whereby your truth might be received and accepted. And we pray that you would continue to do this redemptive work in us and to make us new and to sanctify us even as we study this morning. So God, open your word and, and use it to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read verses 16 through 19. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. And let's read verses 20 and 21 together. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is the time of the year where many of us uh, look forward to a new start. And we make New Year's resolutions. And, uh, and I don't want to make light of those things. I don't think that's an entirely unbiblical reality. And I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. I think, I think it's a good thing. But I, I think as humans, sort of intrinsically or naturally, I, I, I think inwardly, we long for new beginnings, fresh starts, new opportunities, second chances. Um, and, 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 and as I said, I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily wrong. I, I think maybe that it's even good to some degree. I think it's a biblical idea. The gospel in itself is a new beginning, isn't it? I mean, the gospel that we preach as Christians, we celebrate the new birth. Remember the language of Jesus to Nicodemus, where he says, what must a man do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, if any man is to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. He must experience the new birth. And as Christians, born-again, believing Christians today, we celebrate this new birth. And it is, in a very real sense, a new beginning. You think about uh, the gospel in terms of repentance expressed and forgiveness received. That constitutes a new beginning, doesn't it? It's a beginning. It's a new beginning that I have been thankful for many, many times in my life. Before God... And through Christ and also with you and, and with my parents and with my brothers and sisters and with my children. As, as we are fallen and as we continue in sin and we fall flat on our face and God gets us up and 
brings about repentance in our life and that repentance is expressed and forgiveness is offered and received and we are set aright again and 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 we are given a new opportunity to, to 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 walk in the path of righteousness to use the language of scripture so i think the idea that uh, the idea of new beginnings is something that is, to some degree, biblical. And I think that sinners so desire these new beginnings or these fresh starts, this forgiveness, received, repentance offered, second chances. I think we desire it internally because deep down inside we know that we are not yet what we were created to be. And I think there's this inward tension that we that we all have and that we all feel and, and even even those that reject Christ and are not willing to admit their brokenness. I think at the end of the day, I know that I, I can only speak for myself, but when I think back into my lost estate, I mean, I longed for second chances and I longed for new beginnings and I longed for forgiveness because I, somewhere deep down inside, I knew that I was not right, that something was amiss, that I was not yet what I was created to be, um, that I needed to be made new to put back into a right state of being. Um, And there is deep down inside of us, this recreation that our soul longs for. And I think that that recreation that we so much desire sort of internally, naturally, to some degree, I think that it is part and parcel to the redemptive work and plan of God in sending Jesus Christ to come to earth at Christmas. Christ came to make new. In Revelation 21, I have come, when he, this is at his second coming, I have come to make all things new that we read a moment ago, to make us new. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, as we're going to see in a moment, to make the covenant new. What did Jesus say in the New Testament multiple times, again and again? This is the blood of the new covenant. In Hebrews, there is a a time is coming when this covenant will be made new. So he's going to make us new. He makes the covenant new. He makes all things new. Creation. We read this from Revelation 21. And I think we're safe to say that this is part of the redemptive plan and purpose of God in sending Christ because it is what is accomplished. Now listen very carefully. You don't need to be a scholar of scripture to know what it is that God intends to do. It's real simple. He intends to do all that he does. And that may seem simple, but but think carefully about this. We know what the intentions of God are because it is what he does. Why? Because all that he does, he intends to do. And all that he intends to do, he completely does. What's the, the only other alternative is that God would desire to do something that he would not be able to accomplish or that he would somehow accomplish something that he did not mean to do by accident. Neither of which option is, is, is okay. So even apart from the testimony of Scripture about the redemptive purpose and plan of Christ coming in order to make things new, we know this because it is what he does. It is what is accomplished. And at the end of the age, all things will be made new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new people of God in a new relationship with him, reconciled to him in a way that they never have been before. That's the truth and the testimony of Revelation 21. And we know that it is what he came to do the first time. It's the work that he began that will then be consummated and completed and finished at the end of the age at his second return. And friends, it's good news that God intends to make us new. That Christ came, that we would be made new. That's the truth of 2 Corinthians 5. So um, 
What I want to do then as we consider this, and I've already alluded to it, I've, I've mentioned it already, but I want us to back out from 2 Corinthians 5 for just a moment because it would be a mistake, I think, to begin with the most narrowly focused work of this, this redemptive work, and that is that he came to make us new. And we think about that the most, we talk about that the most, and it is very real and it is very important. It's maybe the most meaningful to us, but I want us to back out and um, sort of open that lens up a bit and get all the way back out to the macro and work our way down into the micro. So I want us to see that Christ came at Christmas to make a new cosmos and, and to make a new covenant, a little bit more specific, but the way that we relate to God, and, and then all the way down to those members of the covenant, new children. Okay? So a new cosmos. Let's just begin there. Um, if you go back to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to ask you to turn there just a few pages back in, in your copy of God's Word. In Romans chapter 8, I want us to begin reading together, and, and we could read this whole chapter and, and it's all significant and important even to our discussion. But in Romans chapter 8, if we look specifically at verses 18 to 22, listen to, listen to the words of Paul here. As he is talking about what sustains us through the sufferings of this life. That's, really, that's the theme of this section here. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, some future hope of glory. Well, what is that future hope and that future glory? For the creation waits or longs with eager longing or anticipation. Some of your uh, translations may, may use the language of groaning. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for this adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the connection that's being made? That on account of sin, right, the language there, subjected to futility. That not only are we then fallen in sin, longing as we suffer along in this life of sin and bondage in a fallen world, not only are we longing for the future hope of glory, that is, to be made new, it is a longing, an anticipation, a groaning that we share with the whole of the cosmos. That we are not the only ones that were damaged in the curse, but that all of creation. And if you remember the language we saw in the cursing in Genesis chapter 3, that thorns and thistles, right, that were not a part of the creation to begin with, that, that the earth and the creation itself was included and it says that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth. Not only the creation, but we ourselves. What are we waiting on eagerly? They are waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What are the sons of God waiting on? For their adoption as sons, their final redemption and glorification. They're waiting to be made new. We're going to see that in a moment back when we get to the very end of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But waiting together with us then is the whole of the cosmos. 
It's a longing that we share. It has been subjected to futility. But notice the language, and I love this. Go back to verse 20. For the whole of the creation was subjected to futility. That is at the fall. Not willingly, right? It was not the creation's fault. It was not the world's fault. It was the created man. But because of him who subjected it in hope that it will one day be set free. That it will be one day set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that the same freedom in some way that we are longing for and that is coming to us, this redemptive work of Christ, when Christ came, this work that has been begun, it will be completed one day at his second return and it extends to the whole of the cosmos. The tension of knowing that we are not what we ought to be, uh, this longing to, to be set back in a right state in the sense that it is a longing that is shared with the whole of creation. Friends, it's a universal longing. And, and I think it's important that we understand something of that reality. It is universal that Christ has come to satisfy this longing universally and that all of the rocks and that all of the trees and that all of the blades of grass and that all of the everything in creation that experiences decay and corruption that is bondage to sin and death in this fallen and dying world, it is longing together with us universally. And friends, the reason that this longing, this knowledge of knowing what we are not and expecting and hoping for a new creation, for a new beginning, for a recreatedness, this longing. The reason I think it is universal is because the work is in accord with God's nature. Now listen very carefully. I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you were with us when we talked about that Christ came to fulfill the promises of God, I made reference there to St. Athanasius. Okay, And in Athanasius' work on the Incarnation, an ancient small book that's easy to read in the translation, I would commend it to you. But he talks about in that work, I made mention to you, the divine dilemma, right? Where, where, where God now has promised death for sin and has cursed man, but then this man, this creation that bears his image and that was once beautiful and perfect is now subjected to this futility and and this bondage to sin. And what does he say there? That it would be in contradiction to God's nature to continue to let sin run rampant, to just let sin have its work, to just let it do its thing and to do nothing about this dilemma or this problem, that it would literally be against God's very nature. And so the promise of God comes in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, that one will come that will deliver us from this bondage, and not only us, all of creation. Prince, what I mean is, there, if you, are there things God can't do? The answer is yes. God can't lie. God can't sin. God can't tell a half-truth. He can't be unrighteous. Why? God must tell the truth because he is truth. So they are the outworking simply of his nature. God must display and show holiness because he is holy. 
And he is holiness. He is the measuring stick by which all holiness or unholiness is measured. God cannot covet because God is in himself completely satisfied. So that all of what God does is in accord with God's own nature. And he cannot do anything that would offend or contradict his nature. And friends, it would be against the nature of God to not be interested in defeating sin and death. And so the result of that is there is this universal longing. Not only in his children, but I think in some way in all men and in every rock and tree and tiger and fly. In all of creation to see sin stamped out and to be made new. So he has come to make a new cosmos, but then very quickly, and I don't want us to get bogged down here, but he has come to make a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, this is the last passage that I'll ask you to turn to, but let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8 together. Hebrews chapter 8 is a book about the superiority of Christ and what he has done. And in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 13, there is a, a quote from the Old Testament prophets. Look at what it says. Behold, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in, verse thir- beginning in verse 8, I'm sorry. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. And they, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, there are a lot of difficulties here. And as I said, I don't want us to get bogged down. But what I want us to see is when Christ talks about this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant, there is this reality that something is now different. And that with the advent of Christ, one of the things that he has made new, that he has fulfilled and redeemed, is the covenant, I simply mean the way that men, that sinners, entered into a relationship with God and related to him. When we go to the Old Testament, under the old administrations, the old covenant, whether you're talking about the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the Noahic covenant or these covenants in the Old Testament, The way that men related to God was very different. And when Christ came, something about that covenant was changed. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The question is, what does it mean that he came to make a new covenant? And and I'm trying to be as superficial as I can be. One of the most neglected areas of study in Baptist life is that of covenant theology. Okay? And, And maybe we can do some of that in a deeper in a deeper way on another day. But let me tell you first what that does not mean, okay? Two things. What it does not mean is that the old covenant was bad. And it's very important that when we talk about the relation of our New Testament to our Old Testament and the relationship of the new covenant by the blood of Christ to the old covenant and the way by which men were reconciled to God through the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and dove, 
That does not mean that he has fulfilled and brought a good one and that the one he fulfilled and that has now been made obsolete, to quote from Hebrews, is is or ever was bad. Friends, the, the old covenant system was made by God and God can't make anything that's bad. To some degree, it had been misunderstood and tainted by sin in a fallen world. And to some degree, his making new would be the redemption of that covenant and the understanding. But even more than that... It was created and instituted by God as a good and necessary means for the people of God. It does not mean that it was bad, and it does not mean that the old covenant was a covenant of works. In other words, it does not mean that now that Christ has come, men relate to and come to God by grace through faith in Christ, while under the old covenant, men assuming now what what so many do, that under the old covenant that men would have come to and related to God based upon their works or their keeping of the old covenant and the Old Testament law. That's not what it means. Whether we're talking about the new covenant by the blood of Christ or the old covenant, what we must understand is that no man came to God under either administration unless it was by grace. So that there is the covenant of grace by which men are redeemed. You can go to Hebrews chapter uh, 10 and 11 there when it talks about the faith that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as, as righteousness. Moses believed and it was their faith that brought them to God. So it does not mean that it was a bad covenant and it does not mean that men were honoring God and coming into a relationship with him based upon their works. But what does it mean? that he has made the other obsolete or the old, and that there is a new covenant by which men relate to God. Well, first of all, it means that what was imperfect under the old has been perfected. And I think that's the, I think that's the best term, terminology to use and to think about. What was imperfect under the old has been perfected. And to use the language of Christ, it has been fulfilled. All of what came before In all of the Old Covenant institutions in the Old Testament, all of them pointed forward to Christmas and ultimately to the cross, to the one who was coming. They were not the end themselves, as the Jews seemed to believe. They were not the end themselves. They were never intended to be the end. They were signs pointing to the end. And the end of the covenant was Christ. They pointed to and they were to prepare us for that which was yet to come. I want you to think about think about it in these terms. It's extremely ironic that the Jews would be the people to reject Jesus who came. How many of you have ever offered a blood sacrifice for anything? I hope none of you. But that whole system is something that's in totally foreign to to me and to you. It's something that we have such a difficult time understanding because we've not been given a framework. And listen, by God's grace, for thousands of years of redemptive history, God's people, specifically the Jews, God's people were given a system that prepared them to understand the blood of Christ that would atone for their sins. The Lamb of God that would be slain. Do you see? It was to prepare them. It was to point forward to the one that was coming. The one that would be more perfect than that which had ever been before. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did how? 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Why? Well, Because when you go to Hebrews, what does it tell you? That the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and of dove and of sheep, that they can only atone for a time and that they cannot appease God's wrath against sin completely. They were imperfect. But when Christ came and he offered up the blood of the new covenant, it was a perfect sacrifice once for all time that did away with the need for the continual slaughter and shedding of blood. So it's new in the sense that what was imperfect And pointing forward in the old has now been perfected in Christ and realized and realized. And it's also important that we realize that in some practical ways, it has changed. The sign and seal of the old covenant was circumcision. And in the New Testament, under the new covenant of the blood of Christ, the sign and seal of our covenant relationship with with God, our reconciliation through this covenant to him is baptism. And unlike circumcision that was only administered to the males in the family, baptism is administered and given and commanded to be adhered to and participated in and gone through by all believers. So, so in some very practical and real ways, he came to make a new cosmos and he came to make a new covenant. But now back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just like he's coming and perfecting, recreating, making new the cosmos and perfecting and redeeming and realizing, fulfilling in the new covenant. Friends, he's coming to make new children. When you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I've used children very specifically, not just because it starts with a C. Because this recreation, this newness, and it's very important that we realize it is not for everybody. It is for the sons of God. Think about Romans chapter 8, the passage that we read, that the creation longs for the glory that is to be revealed to whom? To the sons of God, to the children of God. And when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So that this is not universalism. That while I have to some degree argued that the longing to be made new, to be recreated, to be made what we ought to be, realizing inwardly that we are not what we were created to be, that while that may be a universal reality shared by all of creation, the redemptive work of God is only found to those who are in Christ. So that this is not a universalism or a moralistic deism. This is not uh, any sort of teaching or idea that men are really naturally and essentially good and that we need to tap into that good and maximize it so that we can be better. It is in fact to the exact contrary. It's to the opposite. It is teaching that there is not good in anyone 
unless that person is found in Christ. That it is not the goodness of the person, it is the goodness of the Christ with whom they have been united. That's the teaching of 2 Corinthians 5. So that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what is it that has been made new in him most essentially, verse 21, he has in Christ taken our sin and bestowed upon us a righteousness that was alien to us. Right? So, so this is not about you being good. This is about you receiving good. And those realities are very different. The truth, though, is that we're given a new beginning. We're given a holiness and a righteousness that we could not have attained and that we could not have enjoyed. When we come to be united with Christ by faith, we are made new. And this new birth, as I've made allusion to, or this recreation, this idea that we are a new creation, notice also in this passage that it is absolutely necessary If we are to be reconciled with God, look at verses 18 and 19. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So how is it that any man or any creature or anything is ever going to be reconciled recreated in such a way that they would be worthy to be with God. Well, it's if they are united with Christ and if they receive the righteousness of Jesus and thereby made worthy, given this righteousness that is not their own, so that it is absolutely and utterly necessary. So first of all, we are new children in that we are in Christ. Secondly, though this redemptive work is not yet completed, it is nonetheless substantially begun this is this is another important aspect of this passage look at what it says therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation currently presently now notice the next line the old has passed away behold the new has come not the old will pass away and the new will come now, friends, you and I know if you are united with Christ and if you have walked, have walked with him for any time, you know that you are not yet what you ought to be. You are not yet what you will be. But thank God you're not what you used to be. And so though we are this longing of our soul to be made new and to be recreated, to, to be what we ought to be, though we are not yet there, and that has not been completely realized, we understand and praise God that in Christ, that work has begun. We have been, in some way, made new. We have been given holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen. it's important, isn't it? Now, this necessary new birth, this... Uh, redemptive work that has begun we could not be with god if we if it had not yet begun hebrews 12 14 we are to pursue a holiness why because without holiness no man shall see god no man shall see the lord i think about the language of the new testament he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of christ jesus 
What? He's simply, he's saying that truth, what I'm saying in this sermon, that one line. What? That Christ has begun this redemptive, recreative work in us to make us new. He's begun it now. And he will continue until it is completed on the day of Christ. What day is that? The day of his return, the consummation of the age, the day that is spoken of in Revelation 21, when he has come to make all things new completely and entirely. So it's a redemptive work that though it is not yet completed, it is substantially begun. But thirdly and finally, we then are given a ministry pertaining to this reality that is a ministry of hope. It's a ministry of hope. Now, based upon the truths that we've spoken of so far, and particularly in 2 Corinthians 5, the exclusivity, the fact that it's this recreation, this being made new is only for children, those that are found in Christ, this exclusivity. A lot of the time we point to that and we say, well, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult to tell someone that they are the problem. You are evil. You are broken. You are fallen. And you are in need of someone to save you from yourself and from your sin. You need to repent and turn to Christ and receive forgiveness and redemption. Folks, the, the truth of the matter is that's a difficult and many have said an arrogant thing to say. Right? You, you go and you share the gospel and those that do not believe and continue in their sin, what will they say to you? Well, you must really think you're somebody to tell me that you know I'm broken and I'm you know, filthy and I'm stained with sin and I'm in need of a Savior. I mean, they don't realize that I've already preached that truth to myself. You know, and I know the depth of my own wickedness much more than I know their own. But our ministry, even though it is a difficult message, it is a ministry of hope. Why? Because it's the ministry of a hope for a new beginning. The reality, folks, is this. While our message may be difficult to tell people this, they already know that they're broken. They may not admit it, but they know that they're broken. And they know that they're sinful. And they have the same longing deep in their soul to be made new. They know that they're not what they once were. Somewhere. And you think about Romans, the, the opening of Romans, where men and their wickedness, it's not that they don't know the truth of God, it's that they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They know that they're broken. And so when we bring them this message, it is the truth that the deep longing of your soul can be satisfied in Jesus. That the new beginning that you hope for on January 1st and that you long for and the, the forgiveness that you so desire, that it is possible in a perfect, in a complete, and in an ultimate way. Even if they don't want to admit it, they will be given hope by the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. that God made Jesus to take their sin so that if they're united with him, they might receive his righteousness, be given a fresh start, to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's a new, it's a new recreation. Not to work in one small, tiny aspect of your life to be new and to be better, it's the hope that you can be given an all-new life and an all-new heart and an all-new mind. It's the hope of a new beginning. 
Friends, it's the message of satisfaction, of longing and joy in Christ and hope for righteousness. No matter how difficult it may be for people to hear, I think if we'll be faithful to proclaim it, what we will find is that people are grateful to receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. That in him you have come to make us new. But God, not just us, that you have perfected the means by which we come to you. That through Christ we no longer stand in need of a system of sacrifices because the perfect and once for all blood of the lamb has been shed. And God, thank you that along with us, you have and will redeem all of your creation such that your children will one day enjoy a new heaven and a new earth where we will suffer no more. They will be free of cancer and death. They'll be free of sin and broken marriages and wayward children. God, we long for that day. We long to be made new. But God, we praise you that that while we are not yet what we hope to be, and we thank you that you have begun this work in us. You have given us a new heart already and bestowed upon us a righteousness that we could never have found. You have brought us into union with Christ and saved us. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to pursue holiness, that we might one day see you, and that we would take this ministry of hope, this ministry of second chance and new beginning, and that we would proclaim it to a lost and a dying world that knows that they're broken but doesn't know how to fix it. Give us confidence in Christ and our weakness be strong. God, use us to save sinners. In Christ's name we pray.